Few of you might not know this about me, but I have an ever-growing collection of watches. I love the versatility and matching my timepiece to both outfits and occasions. From everyday styles to finely crafted designs, you name it, I probably own it. So can you imagine how excited I was during lockdown that I could still try on new watch styles and get the shopping experience I love without leaving the house? That's thanks to the power of augmented reality on Snapchat. With Snap AR, businesses can transform how they connect with customers like you and me and the results they deliver. And did you know that more than 200 million Snapchatters use AR every day on average? So if you are in the fine jewellery business or any other business for that matter and want to connect with an engaged audience, you need to visit forbusiness.snapchat.com forward slash OYS and tap into the power of Snap AR today. Hello, I'm Arvin Hickman and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. A new John Lewis insurance ad of a young boy in dress-up has caused huge controversy with critics arguing the ad sexualizes children. Others have suggested the ad has a different problem in that it may not accurately depict what John Lewis home insurance covers. I'm joined by my colleagues Imogen Watson, Campaign's work and inspiration editor, and our technology and gaming editor, Simon Gwynn, to make sense of it all. Good to be here once again. Excited for my first ever podcast, and I hope it won't be the last one you ask me to come on. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> That's real confidence for you. Uh, also today, we're going to take a deep dive into ad fraud with special guest, Dr. Augustin Fu, who pulls no punches. And we'll review ads from Danelm Wagamama and Camden Town Brewery. This is the first time Imogen is joining our podcast. She's a brilliant new addition to the campaign team, but has covered advertising for a number of years. Imogen, you've been following the John Lewis insurance ad controversy. Can you explain to our listeners why some people in Adland have found the ad so offensive? Uh, I'll give a brief sort of, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen it, which I'm sure for is most people have seen it, but I'll give a brief sort of thing of that and then explain the controversy. But essentially... Uh, the ad is promoting John Lewis's home insurance and it sees a child dressed up in their mother's clothing, makeup splashed over their face, uh, rocking out to uh, Edge of Seventeen by Stevie Nicks. And by rocking out, I mean destroying the whole house. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's very similar to 2015's Tiny Dancer. But in 2015, Tiny Dancer, that was, you know, you know, it was a precarious uh, destruction because it was teetering on destroying things. Um, and so I, it's been, I haven't seen an ad that's caused such a polarizing uh, response in a long time. Um, but this one, in terms of like the criticism, it's two-sided. One's for depicting a spoiled child. Uh, I'm not a parent, but I think I'd be pretty annoyed um, if my child had done that to my house. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think people forget that ads aren't supposed to always depict reality. And, you know, it is promoting home insurance. So it kind of makes sense <laughs> that they would show an extreme. There was another side to that, which is obviously that the, there was a whole question whether the insurer would actually pay out for all the destruction that the child caused. Um, and then, you know, the other side foundation with the, what they deemed leaning into old fashioned high camp stereotypes of what it means to be gay. And, you know, the, the sexualization of children. How many complaints has the ad received so far? So it has received 337 complaints. And to put that in perspective, um, 2019's most complained about ad was the Go Compare ad um, with Gio Compario, where he's driving the car, and that received 336. So this is now, therefore, the most controversial ad. Um, well, I mean, we're finding out whether it's been the most complained about ad this year, but it's definitely beaten 
the most complained about ad of 2019. Okay. And what's been the response from John Lewis and its creative agency, Adam and Eve? So it feels that they were kind of pretty unprepared for the backlash, um, which is surprising because you'd imagine that, you know, when when you're putting up potentially controversial content, you would be prepared for a backlash. Um, but that might also be a reflection of the fact that they might not have even considered that the content they were putting out was that, you know, shocking. Um, but in terms of the John, Adam and Eve has chosen not to comment. Um, in terms of Adam and Eve, they didn't address the anti-LGBT backlash, but they defended it against claims of sexism and toxic masculinity. Um, and many have criticised them for not defending the ad better. And one of the sort of disappointing parts of the reaction to the ad is it might prevent you know ads in the future from from daring to represent the lgbt community for fear of causing a stir um so yeah there has been sort of issue in the sense of how they've responded to it now not everyone has criticized the ad Uh, some have actually defended it can you take us through some of the defenses of the ad i saw one headline that i'm going to read out because i thought it was pretty brilliant but it said the new john lewis advert is a glorious antidote to toxic boys will be boys messaging um, and that was on the independent, and I couldn't agree more with that. And I think uh, many have commended it just for sort of you know this burst of joy into people's lives, um, and and just the the role model that's sort of the centre of the the ad itself. For me, it's the sort of ad that looks at what it means to be a child in twenty twenty one, and it's sort of encouraging boys don't have to you know not get involved in what their sisters are doing and whatnot. So yeah, in that sense, it's been you know widely commended for quite a refreshing viewpoint on that. Yeah. Now, Simon, we discussed this one last week, didn't we? Were you sort of surprised by the backlash? Yeah, well, I think uh, when we, 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 this was a late edition, wasn't it, to last week's podcast, Arvind? And um, um, so we hadn't quite uh, appreciated how much reaction it was going to generate. I don't think I was surprised, though. Um, it's There's a lot of uh, factors to this that are exactly the kind of things that, that animate people, and um, particularly at the moment. But just in, in terms of some of the comments I'm going to share, I'm going to slightly defer to somebody I, I spoke to, um, a very senior strategist in a, another agency who's got Got some experience of insurance brands. I had a chat to them uh, about what they thought of, of this. And uh, first of all, um, on the question of, you know, whether this is accidental damage and whether it's something that, that John Lewis would actually uh, cover, they said, oh, absolutely, they would. And, you know, from the uh, perspective of having um, worked on insurance brands, that this person thought that it was a really strong campaign. And it's exactly the kind of thing that insurance brands should be doing to humanize and bring emotion into what insurance is all about, because it's a difficult category for people to engage in. But it is incredibly important. It's something you only need to rely on when things go wrong. Um, but when they do, you know, it's absolutely it's it, it can make the difference between, a, you know, a, a horrendous situation and one that's um, that's not all too, too bad. But we also chatted about the uh, the depiction of, of gender in this this boy or this child. And um, they made a a really interesting point, which is that the conversations around these things have moved on so much over the last uh, six years, you know, since Tiny Dancer came out. And I feel like uh, had this ad been uh, been produced in 2015, what we might have seen is um, a lot of people celebrating the fact that they were, you know, showing a different kind of version of um, of, of boyhood and, um, you know, playing with gender boundaries and so on. Um, there probably wouldn't have been the same kind of uh, backlash and 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 the variety as well of different kind of comments that that we've. Uh, 
we've had. But the conversation's moved on that people are so much more engaged in in these issues and they know so much more about it now that um, it's actually something to be celebrated that that people are able to have uh, this kind of conversation and, and bring so much to this, even if that means that some people are seeing things that they don't like in there. Imogen, you touched before on how advertisers might be more guarded in terms of um, creative that, that sort of represents the LGBT uh, plus community. What are some of the lessons here that you think can be learned from this ad and the controversy that it stirred? In terms of lessons, I would say, you know, I think that they were brave to what they did. And I think it's a full, you know, evidence of the progression that we've seen in the last couple of years. But I think what the, what they let themselves down with is that the, they didn't defend the ad better and really stand up for it. And I feel like their kind of defense of it was a bit, you know, they're very murky on the, you know, their their understanding of why the backlash, probably presumably just trying to cover their back. And I think at the end of the day, you know, this all comes down to, you know, brand risk um, and no brand wants to find itself. in. Well, sometimes they do because it obviously causes a bit of attention. Um, I wonder if anybody's going to be in mean, home insurance. But I think the key lessons are if you're you need to be brave, you need to make sure you've got the right team behind you and team that, you know, and, and I think that the ad itself, I have no complaints for it whatsoever. I think it depicted um, in my eyes. I think it was a very nice depiction um, of everything that we've just discussed. Um, and I think the key learning would just be just if you're going to uh, take a big step in it and uh, approach these big topic areas, then you've got to really have a, a, a be able to, you know, respond to the backlash in a better way and therefore convince other people not to fear from doing what you're doing. One thing that we've not touched on greatly is that the, the, um, the uh, self-described uh, gender critical f- feminist view of this, which is that it's some kind of um, transgender propaganda, which is a, a whole nother uh, kettle of fish that uh, we won't. I don't think we have time to, to to really do justice to right now. But I think it's a it's a brilliant ad. You know, I stand by everything that I said and you said last week, um, Arvind. Um, and um, I think they also should pat themselves on the back that they've made something that a lot of people love and has got loads of attention. Plenty of people probably didn't know John Lewis did insurance before this, and they certainly do now. Right, let's move on to our ad reviews. And one ad that where that little boy from John Lewis will not be invited to is the Danelm ad. Uh, Imogen, can you take us through the ad? So this is Danelm's latest ad by a creature who was appointed as its creative agency back in July. Uh, and it's a dystopian vision um, of a colourless suburbia where families are all living these sort of drab grey lights. Um, and one member of the society uh, introduces a Dunelm carrier bag uh, and that causes a domino effect essentially um, and the residents of this Orwell inspired neighbourhood um, start to experiment with Dunelm's range of furnishing but I just thought it was a really great ad a nice piece of very it's, you know creature was appointed to try and define and bring sort of life to Dunelm and I think this ad very much did that being the same being the same as everybody else no no did the neighbours see? I don't care. Come on, you colour. What did you like about it the most? Because, to be honest, at the end of the day, and I, I don't know if this is going to be... I remember going to Donelm 
back in the day when I was at university, whatever, and it was always one of those things where you kind of went and it, it never felt that exciting. <laughs> but I think the creatures work it's been doing for it since it sort of started has been giving a sort of edge to the brand uh, and making it a lot more exciting. And I think, you know, I, I love dystopian <laughs> content. I think it's really exciting. And I think it was beautifully shot. Um, and it was quite a young creative team behind it. Um, they're quite new and it was, you could kind of tell in a good way that they were behind it. It's definitely an interesting concept, isn't it, Simon? It, it kind of stands out a little bit from category. What was your take on the Danelm ad? Yeah, I loved it too. Uh, I love the Black Mirror vibe in the first half and the fact that it kind of completely transitions into this thing within you know the course of 60 seconds. The second half, it's got some maybe some familiar tropes from, you know, home furnishing uh, ads, but it's also got its own thing going on. It probably is quite a, a, a challenging uh, brand to work on because if you think about the sector that they're in, IKEA is in such a strong position. It's got such such a brilliant, well-known and, and loved brand and, and that's who they're up against. And then obviously there's plenty of other competitors too. Um, but I think, yeah, I think Creature have done a really good job of, uh, of doing something here that's going to grab people's attention and hopefully um, get them to uh, to give Danelm a try. Okay, let's move on from dystopian to dinosaurs. Wagamama has launched a campaign by Uncommon featuring a giant rubber dinosaur character to promote its plant-based menu options. Um, the spot was really inspired by Godzilla, was it? wasn't it, Imogen? It, this large green dinosaur walking around, damaging buildings, lasering stuff, launching his arm at an offshore oil rig before um, he is convinced to stop. Stop. I know you're mad. I'm mad too. But eating more plants is one of the most powerful things we can do to help our planet. Okay. Uh, what's your take on this one? I just love the rocket arm. Like that for me. Do we know like an ad just like the little piece de resistance uh, was that? Yeah, that, that was absolutely amazing, wasn't it? That, that for me was the climax of the whole ad. Exactly. And I think the really cool thing about it is often, you know, with these, there's quite a big thing that Wagamama's is the first high street brand to offer half of its products as, as plant-based. And I think often with these sort of sustainability comms or these pushes, it can often be quite doom and gloom. It's often, you know, we need to do something or the world's going to die. And I think what they did brilliantly was have this bizarre, bonkers, approach uh, that kind of made issues that can often feel a bit alarming or scary into quite a fun sort of impactful you know it, and, and the way I, I just loved the way that they even they created the dinosaur uh, the, the Godzilla like I just loved everything about it I thought it was really cool yeah you know I, I'm going to disagree with you on, on the ending bit because I actually had a problem with this ending it was really building up to something amazing especially when he launched his arm at the oil rig and then he just kind of like gets told to stop and then just sort of waddles off feeling a bit sorry for himself Simon what was your feelings about this ad were you left as disappointed as myself no, no, no. I, I thought that was funny personally. Uh, I love the fact that Uncommon have, have done a kind of funny, silly ad. They've done some really good stuff recently, but it's it's generally been pretty serious in tone. And, you know, I, I raved about their, their ad for Google with the voiceover by Marcus Rashford, but that was, uh, you know, it was somber and, and serious. And they've shown that they're very good at doing that kind of stuff. But it's nice that they've They've done something uh, different, exactly as um, Imogen was saying. And uh, I think Wagamama's a, a, a fun brand. You know, people, it's a kind of fun place to go for dinner. Um, there's lots of nice little aspects that, that give it a lot of potential to, to create this kind of fun uh, advertising. I think it's worth pointing out that it does bear um, some similarities to um, a famous Chewitt's ad campaign, which I think we're possibly all too young or Australian to have uh, seen on TV in the UK when when that first came out. I do remember. <laughs> yeah, and possibly, um, possibly 
other can- campaigns besides. But, you know, there's no true originality in the world, is there? So when I talked to them about that, they did touch on the fact that obviously, you know, Godzilla is quite a well-trodden trope. And, you know, they want to inject it with this new sort of, you know, the humour and the sort of bonkersness. And as you say, the, the ending for me, again, was actually quite a strong point because I think that it started what was pace and this destruction. And then it was just so surreal and kind of weird that it all just stopped just from one person saying something to her. And she was like, oh, OK. Well, can we all agree that the ending was a bit Marmite? Uh, Speaking of which, our next ad um, for Camden Town Breweries. (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) Not just a pretty face, Imogen. Um, Our our next um, ad for Camden Town Breweries um, is basically to do with their new um, brew, which I believe incorporates Marmite. Imogen, give us a rundown on this new ad. So, yeah, they introduced the Camden uh, Town Brewery Marmite back in July. I don't know if you've tried it. It's it's nice. It's nice. Yeah. It's it's it makes sense in a way, you know, because like actually if you think about it like Marmite is made from the byproduct of of brewing. It's yeast. It does make sense when you think about it. Yes. Yeah, because you know all the other versions of Marmite, you know, they're they're collaborations. So you've had Marmite Links Africa. <laughs> you've had Marmite. I think there was a Marmite Cornetto. Yeah, you can't uh, be serious. And uh Marmite uh Walker's Chris. This is what I mean. So often with Marmite it's like, are you kidding me? Um, but this time round, it feels kind of like authentically like, why have they never done this? Um, so, yeah, to, they basically said that um, they wanted to, off the back of the success, they thought it was sort of, de- it deserved a TV ad um, to really introduce it to people. Um, and what they did was they sort of, um, there was an, a famous Marmite ad uh, back in 2001. And basically the whole premise of the ad was it's the first date and they go back to the the, the apartment and it all goes wrong with them. Um, the lady has a bite of a Marmite bagel uh, and the guy's disgusted, which seems like quite a strong reaction, but it hits home the whole love-hate thing. So they decided to do their own version of it. And I always find it very fun when brands decide to recreate old ads. I don't know if that's just the ad lover in me that sort of has rem- reminiscent of, of ads of the past, uh, but they've done their own version. And instead of having the Marmite bagel, it's uh, they go back to, back to the apartment and the lady gives him a glass of the Marmite beer, um, and he gags. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is me. Yeah. Nice. That's your drink? Love one. I didn't realise this was based on an old ad, so I kind of watched it coming in, you know, without understanding that. And it just didn't really do it for me. It didn't really make me want to drink the beer or want to kiss someone who had drunk the beer. So I guess I I, I didn't really appreciate what it was trying to get at. Um, But this whole idea of combining Marmite and in Australia, Vegemite um, with with food products, it's not really original. But as you said, um, what's interesting about this is that beer and yeast does make a lot of sense. So I will definitely be trying it. Simon, did you have a view on this one? Yeah, you know, I just absolutely love the notion that you uh, invite someone back to your place after a date and then give them this drink without asking. It's to- totally ludicrous. I mean, like, I haven't tried it. Maybe it's okay. Um, but Imogen, I think when we were chatting about this the other day, we kind of blew the lid off, you know, speaking of ad fraud, which of course uh, we were chatting to uh, Augustine about. Uh, I think we we blew the lid of, off the, the fraud at the heart of Marmite's brand positioning, um, because I, I believe you said to me that you, you kind of like Marmite, but you don't love it. 
Whereas personally, uh, I'm not a big fan, but I definitely wouldn't say I hate it. Um, so it's nonsense, absolute nonsense that you either love it or hate it. I think a lot of people are like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, I kind of like it or I kind of hate it. For many years, ad fraud has been a massive problem for Adland, with some estimates predicting it could cost global advertisers $62 billion alone this year. But did you know that ad fraud is much more prevalent and pervasive than many in the industry would have you believe, including in newer areas like CTV advertising? And nowhere near enough is being done to tackle the problem. Joining us to discuss this and much more is my colleague Simon Gwynn and one of the world's leading experts and researchers on ad fraud. Dr. Augustin Fu is a former Group Chief Digital Officer of Omnicom's healthcare consultancy and digital strategy lead at McCann World Group and MRM Worldwide. He now helps marketers audit their digital campaigns for fraud and optimizations. Welcome to the campaign podcast, Augustine. Thank you. Uh, Glad to be here with you. When we talk about ad fraud, it's such a broad area, but perhaps you can give our listeners a bit of a rundown on how big this issue really is and why brands and agencies should care. Sure. Uh, It's pretty simple. I've been writing about this for the past 10 years. And digital ad fraud is basically ads shown to bots and not to humans. So in the early days of digital advertising, uh, there were legitimate publishers with websites uh, that had real content for real humans. So when humans visited their site and looked at a page, the ads would load. But fast forward uh, to the dawn of programmatic advertising. Uh, The programmatic exchanges now aggregated hundreds of thousands of sites. Uh, Some of those are fake websites or fraudulent websites designed solely to commit fraud because their purpose was not to create content for real human audiences. Their purpose was solely to load as many ads as possible. So over the years, we've seen sites with zero content on them and 100% ads, like 50 ads on the page. And what they do is they use bot traffic to repeatedly load those web pages. So that's how they can generate hundreds of billions of ad impressions. And to the marketers, obviously, even though they get very large quantities of ad impressions, it's completely useless for their marketing objectives. Because if the ads are not shown to humans, there's not going to be any kind of business outcomes. Like bots don't buy stuff from you. So put basically, um, that's what ad fraud is. And it's basically now pervaded every form of digital advertising from display ads to video ads to mobile ads to mobile app ads to now CTV ads, which means connected uh, TV advertising, uh, video streaming ads. Um, Augustine, uh, obviously there's uh, human beings behind uh, this happening. And I think one of the things that makes it so troubling is that it's obviously invisible. Um, So I was wondering if you could if you can tell us anything about who the people are who are carrying out this ad fraud? Yeah, that's a very common question, right? Who are the criminals? Um, it only takes a few of them because you can imagine uh, it only takes a few very skilled bot makers to maintain vast botnets. And then everyone else is basically just renting time on those botnets. So there, you know, everyone doesn't have to be a bot master themselves. Okay, so... Basically, the botnets that were previously used for DDoS attacks, right, distributed denial of service attacks, where the botnets can overwhelm websites with so much traffic that they fail, these same botnets can be pointed at websites that that carry ad tech code, right? So the enormous amount of traffic can now be used to generate page views and ad impressions, right? So it's basically just a different use of those botnets. And when I say rent time on those botnets, you can imagine those fake websites that have zero human audiences 
they have to buy all their traffic. So I use the phrase bought traffic equals bought traffic. So B-O-U-G-H-T, bought traffic equals bought traffic, B-O-T, traffic, because there's not a whole bunch of humans sitting around with nothing to do but to go to your specific website when you tell them to, especially you know if it's a website that nobody even knows about. But bots are very reliable. You can tell them, I want to buy exactly 10 million page views for my website this month. And then the botnet operator can basically just type in one line of code and command the botnet to do exactly that. So it's very, basically very trivial uh, for people to uh, pay for traffic and then get a whole bunch of traffic to the websites. They don't even have to be skilled enough to make a botnet on their own. Mm. It's alarming how uh, how straightforward it seems, really. Um, I guess most of our listeners have, have come across the problem of, of bot traffic uh, before, but reading earlier some of the things that you've written about, it seems like ad fraud actually comes in kind of all sorts of different shapes and, and forms. And um, there was one article where you discussed things like ad stacking, pixel stuffing, domain spoofing, pop-unders, uh, mobile apps preloading all these huge numbers of ads. Um, can you tell us a bit about some of uh, some of these? A lot of people have obviously heard of ad fraud. Uh, there's a couple of layers of assumptions or denials, if you will. So some of them will say, oh, it doesn't happen to me, right? It happens to someone else. And yes, we know about the problem, but it doesn't affect our campaigns. Part of that comes from uh, when they look at the fraud detection reports, right, that they get from the vendors that are supposed to detect the fraud for, for them, uh, they might get 1% fraud. And so they think, oh, well, cool, everything's fine. Some of that comes from the fact that the detection technology is easily tricked by the bots and the fraudsters. So they get by undetected. And like you mentioned, there are other forms of fraud beyond just the bots, right? So if you have a fake website, you know, first of all, you don't have any real audience, so you have to buy all the traffic. So the bots are the fake users that come to your site. But while you're buying the traffic, you might as well do other forms of cheating to multiply your own revenues, right? So if you stick 10 ads uh, on top of each other in the same ad slot, you just multiplied your ad revenue by 10, right? So the bad guys are going to use every single technique they possibly can, uh, can use to increase their own ad revenue since nobody's complaining anyway and you know nobody's detecting it anyway uh they're getting away with it so so basically all of those other forms of fraud if the technology is not tuned to catch them or uh, basically the bad guys have better tech to trick the detection um then we're under reporting so that's why a lot of the trade associations and other people think oh you know it's low so everything's fine let's just keep buying we're going to come to detection and the trade association issue a bit later on. But one of the fraud, fraud trends you've sort of been monitoring in recent times is to do with connected TV. In fact, in one of your recent articles, you said that it's now overrun um, with ad fraud. That might come as a bit of a surprise to our listeners in the UK because connected TV advertising over here is considered to be fairly premium. Can you sort of explain the issue in a bit more detail and provide some examples of where it occurs? Um, this is basically a replication of every form of digital ad fraud before it, right? So when we were dealing with display ads, you know, 10 years ago, uh, there was fraud there because bad guys set up fake websites and use fake traffic to generate lots of display ads. Then we went to video ads. So bad guys turned their attention to video ads because at the time, CPMs for video ads were 10 times higher. So it's far more lucrative for the bad guys to generate video ad impressions than display. So they went where the money was. Then we moved into mobile. Then we moved into mobile app. And now we're moving into CTV. 
So literally, as the marketers continue to shift their dollars into each different form of digital advertising, the ad guys follow the money. And currently, CTV ads are 10 times higher in CPM, cost per thousand, than all the other forms of digital ads, right? So that is what every advertiser wants to buy. So bad guys are there to create fake inventory out of thin air to sell it to them. Okay, now obviously they're taking advantage of a trend. So in 2020, during the pandemic, a lot of people stayed home. So the amount of CTV consumption, the real CTV consumption definitely went up, right? So now the bad guys are basically hiding within that trend. What is not known is that the fraudulent amount of CTV uh, viewing and ads went way, way further higher. What is not known is that the amount of CTV fraud uh, shot up way higher than the actual human consumption of it. So yes, more humans are watching more CTV streams, but the fraud uh, increased even larger than that. And it's so simple now because the uh, bad guys, the botnets, can basically pretend to be a connected TV, uh, Roku streaming device, or a Roku app, right? All they have to do is say they're that Roku app. They just declare that they are that. And it's that easy to, to get away with the fraud. Because in CTV, none of the detection technologies, including mine, uh, can run JavaScript, right? So all we can rely on would be a static pixel to detect or basically count the number of impressions. So the detection is far more limited and far easier to trick. And so the bad guys are laughing all the way to the bank. Well, I was also wondering uh, how much of the overall ad fraud problem is is a direct consequence of programmatic buying. And would we still have a big ad fraud problem if we moved away from that method of buying? So virtually all of the fraud is due to programmatic. Okay, now let me be a little more clear on that. Programmatic technology is not bad. It's just like a hammer, you know, any tool can be used for good or for evil. So when programmatic technology came along, the benefits of it is that it helped automate the buying and selling of ads. Because previously, buyers, the advertisers, could go to a small number of big publishers like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Condé Nast, Meredith, so on and so forth, and buy media from them. But once we had the proliferation of websites in Web 2.0, right, a lot more people could put up websites, those sites also wanted to run ads. So now when we have millions upon millions of sites, the buyers can't go to every single one of them and negotiate, you know, media placements, right? So it created the need for programmatic exchanges. So when programmatic exchanges came along, they aggregated hundreds of thousands of sites into one place, just kind of like the stock exchange, right? So now they're matching up buyers and sellers of ad impressions. So then the buyers could go to one place, the exchange, and then buy across hundreds of thousands of sites. So that in and of itself was a good thing. But what it also permitted is basically a whole bunch of bad guys creating fake websites to add into the exchange, right? So if fake websites become part of the exchange and you're not looking carefully, uh, you end up spending money and placing ads on the fake websites as well. And a data point that we had in 2015 is when AppNexus voluntarily cleaned up their own exchange and purged 92% of their own inventory. Who does that? Okay. They did that for a PR thing to get more PR for themselves, but that led to a question. Okay. So if they cleaned up 92% of their own inventory, what about the remaining eight? How much of that was fraudulent? Right. So basically in their haste to grow as fast as possible, they let everybody in. 
That means every fraudster could put their site or mobile app into the exchange and start selling to the biggest advertisers. And that's where the problem of fraud uh, grew up dramatically. So you'll see in one of my charts after 2012 and 2013, when programmatic exchanges went mainstream, that's when the problem of fraud exploded. Can I just ask on that point, are there any exchanges that are cleaner than others that you've observed? No. The reason for that is because the exchanges have no motive, right? So they might be looking into it. They might even have some employees dedicated to finding fraud. But if they actually found the fraud, that would mean possibly 30%, 50% less volume flowing through their exchanges. So none of them are going to be proactively cutting off 50% of their own revenues, right? So basically, the policy has been, if a customer complains, uh, we'll cut it off. Right. And it will turn off those domains and apps that are clearly cheating from their campaign. They're not even going to turn it off in the whole exchange because no one else is complaining. Why voluntarily make less money if nobody's even complaining about the fraud? And that gets to another very important point. The advertisers actually want the fraud because there's no other way they can buy that much quantity of ad impressions uh, at that low price, uh, low CPMs. And at that great performance, because they're counting click-through rates as performance. So the advertisers themselves are part of the problem because they've wanted to buy the three things that fraud in programmatic has given to them. Large quantities, low prices, and high click-through rates. Just on that point, what, what's the role of agencies here? I mean, you used to work at, at a big group. Uh, do they have a, a bigger role to play in, in terms of monitoring and, and policing ad fraud in behalf of their clients? Of course. They're agents. They're supposed to do that. They're, cl- they're supposed to serve their clients, but yet they don't. They serve their profit margins and so that their stock price can go up on Wall Street, right? I would never go back and work for any agency, and I'll, I'll make that public uh, on the public record. And that's because every time I've witnessed their decision-making, it's always for their own profit, uh, profit margin and revenues. So in the case of programmatic, you'll remember that in 2015, 2014, 2015, the holding company set up trading desks at the holding company level and forced all of their media agencies to use their own trading desks. Why do you think they did that? It's because now they can base, uh, basically rip off their own clients without telling them. And what I mean by that is we use the term arbitrage as a euphemism. Okay, It's basically ripping off their own clients without telling them. What they do with their programmatic exchanges is that they go buy bulk quantity. right? So they go to all the all the exchanges and say, you know, we represent so many billions of dollars of ad spending. We want all the ads that you can possibly sell to us, right? And so those exchanges will say, okay, yeah, we can sell you 100 billion ad impressions. Now note that those ads don't exist prior to humans going to the web page, right? What if there's not enough humans that went to that site uh, by the end of the month, right? They're kind of running behind then all of them will frantically start buying bot traffic so that they can make their number, right? And that's because they already sold the impressions. If they don't uh, have those impressions, don't generate those impressions, they'll be in breach of contract. So then all the exchanges now have been compelled because they already sold it. They sold something that they didn't actually have. So then they go out and use bot traffic to make up their number, right? To make sure they can deliver. And then similarly, the agencies would have bought it at wholesale, essentially, and then they're selling it at retail with undisclosed markups, right? Agencies are supposed to be agents. They're supposed to buy it on behalf of their clients. They're not supposed to be principal traders, right? So just like a grocery store will buy oranges at wholesale, 
and sell it at retail. In that particular case, they have the right to not disclose their margins. But in the case of an agency, they're not supposed to do that. Right? So the 2016 transparency study by the ANA showed that that was regular practice on the, on the part of the media agencies. And it was basically top-down. Uh, management of those holding companies told them to do it. And it made it a regular practice among the media agencies. That's uh, there's quite a scathing assessment of um, of the agency sector there, but presumably you wouldn't see everybody who works in media agencies as as kind of endorsing these practices. If if you're if you're right about what's going on, um, are there any ways for for people who like to uh, change things to um, to make any impact? So let me be clear: I'm indicting the holding companies for that business practice of ripping off their own clients. Okay. I am not indicting the people who work there. Most of the people who work at agencies are overworked. They're hardworking people. Uh, they have to keep their jobs. So even if they see this, it's at high risk for them to actually speak up about it. Right? I spoke up about it. I, I talked about some of the bad practices. And clearly, I don't work at agencies anymore. And I would never work at agencies. So I understand the people who are working there, they really can't speak up. And it takes tremendous amount of courage uh, to be a whistleblower. So if there are outright fraud cases that are clearly documented, I would encourage more whistleblowers to step up because the kind of fraud that we're talking about is being propped up by the inaction of various parties in the supply chain, including the media agencies and the exchanges. And ultimately, those dollars, the big dollars that are coming from the big advertisers are flowing through to really unsavory sites, right? Not only the disinformation sites, the piracy sites, but also the fake news ones are the ones that are spreading hate speech and coronavirus disinformation. So it's really the ad dollars coming from the biggest advertisers that are keeping these fraudsters and criminals going. And that's not a good thing. Okay. And this obviously extends much um, further beyond advertisers and their agencies. I mean, in the past, you have accused trade bodies such as the IAB and you know the Association of National Advertisers in the US of protecting the golden goose um, and by, by sort of ignoring the scale of the digital ad fraud problem. Uh, it's really interesting. In one of the previous articles that you, you wrote, you sort of cited a trend of the past five years that showed internet usage was plateauing while digital ad spend was increasing nearly threefold in that period. And that sort of is evidence that traffic is being generated by bots and, and other fraudulent methods. Now, obviously, these bodies aren't here to defend themselves, but I'd sort of like you to explain a bit further why you put some of the blame at the association bodies. For years and years, I had given them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, could it be possible that they simply didn't know? Okay, so yes, for a number of years, they could successfully claim that, oh, we simply didn't know. But after uh, me writing about this for 10 years, I don't think they can claim that they don't know the extent of fraud anymore. And by constantly citing those detection vendors, so there are fraud detection vendors whose numbers are always in the half percent to one percent range. So by citing those consistently and refusing to even look at any other data, including mine, right? doesn't have to be mine. There's plenty other researchers who can show them way, way more fraud than the 1%. By deliberately ignoring that and refusing to acknowledge that there could be more fraud, right? Beyond just the bots going to web pages, like, like we were talking about earlier, there's many other forms of fraud and cheating that are simply not taken into account if you're only detecting for bots. Right. By not acknowledging that, they have essentially covered up right? by 
not taking action against that and telling all the advertisers uh, through their annual reports that fraud or IVT is 1%, that is actually harming the advertisers who are their own members, right? Because it's not telling them the hard truth because now is a time when every advertiser should be at their most vigilant, not their least vigilant because fraud has gone up. And I always say it this way, fraud is at its highest point ever, both in dollars and in rate. The dollar part is easy to understand because there's the most dollars being spent in digital advertising now, right? So as you know, the dollar amounts uh, lost to fraud are the largest ever. And the rate of fraud is actually highest ever as well because the bad guys' bots have gotten better at hiding, better at feeding the fraud detection. So now when the fraud detection vendors are reporting 1%, that means they're missing most of the bots that are actually good enough to defeat their detection. Mm. So I think if you're a, you know, a, a marketing leader listening to this, it might be pretty disheartening, maybe maybe terrifying. And uh, from what you've said in the past, you know, it seems like you think a lot of the industry's kind of had its head in the sand. Um so if you're, if you're a marketer starting to panic about the state of your digital advertising, uh, what would you recommend? Is there anyone that they can trust? My recommendation to marketers is, first of all, don't panic and don't be scared, but also don't trust. So the only party that can help you as a marketer is yourself. I would encourage them to look at their own reports and their own analytics in detail. And don't just trust the Excel spreadsheets that their agency sends them at the end of the month. Just think about this for a second. Think about motivations. What is the agency going to tell you? Are they going to tell you there's 30% fraud or 50% fraud, even if they see it in the data? They're certainly not going to tell you that because, first of all, it's too embarrassing. And second of all, you might actually take money away from them. Okay, so think about all the motivations of the parties that you deal with or the vendors that you deal with. They don't have any motive to tell you the hard truth about the fraud. So that's what I mean by the only party that can actually do something about this is the marketer themselves. So if you haven't asked for detailed placement reports, ask for that, right? Then you can actually see where your ads are going. And then you can say, oh, well, why are my ads going to all these uh, hate speech sites, disinformation sites and things like that? Because if you just get a number like, oh, you bought 10 billion impressions this month at this average CPM, you're not going to see any of that. So the principle is ask harder questions, get more detailed reports, and then start peeling back the onion because common sense will tell you there's something wrong. And then you ask further questions. That's how you can solve most of the fraud yourself. And the other thing, a a very simple way to reduce the amount of fraud impacting your campaigns is don't try to buy massive reach and frequency, right? Massive quantities of ads because there are a finite number of humans on earth spending a finite amount of time online and on social media and on their mobile devices. There aren't enough humans and enough hours in the day for them to be generating 100 trillion ad impressions that programmatic ad exchanges would like to sell you and media agencies would like to buy for you. So you're the only party, the marketer themselves, uh, who can actually do something about this. I think those are some great recommendations, um, but the, some specific skills needed to, to be able to, to do all that. Do you see much evidence that brands are hiring people specifically able to do those things? I don't think there needs to be a, a very specialized skill set. It just takes a little bit of practice to learn it. So if you can read Google Analytics, just look for something very simple like, when are your ads being displayed, right? If they're all being displayed in the overnight hours, 
you can tell, okay, that's not humans. Humans are sleeping. So all the ads must have been shown to something other than humans. Okay. Um, if you see uh, bounce rates that are 0% or 100%, things are just too extreme to be rational. Okay. Something's wrong with that. Ask more questions. If you see click-through rates that are 50%, 100%, ask some questions. The problem is most marketers, especially the largest ones, have not looked at any level of detail in their own analytics. And that's because they outsourced all of it to their agencies. And so the agencies don't have a very big incentive to do a ton of hard work and show them, oh, here's a whole bunch of fraud. Okay, so again, it doesn't require a large amount of specialized skills. It just means you need to be more vigilant about the money you spend. And especially when you're spending $100 million in digital, you know, or even if you're spending $100 in digital, right? I, I actually see that small business owners are way more vigilant because $100 to them is far more meaningful to them than $100 million to a P&G, right? So remember the example where P&G turned off $200 million of ad spend, digital ad spend, and they saw no change in outcomes. And Chase reduced the number of websites showing their ads from 400,000 sites to 5,000 sites. That's a 99% decrease in reach. And they saw no change in business outcomes. So for them, blowing $200 million is nothing. To a small business owner, blowing $200 on digital ads, if they don't get any return from it, they can't spend the next $200. And so it's really a matter of not specialized skills. It's whether you care about your money or not. Right. And most marketers need to do more to look at their own analytics, ask harder questions. Don't just assume that it's working for you. Some very sound advice there. Thank you so much, Dr. Augustin Fu, for joining the campaign podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Really, really interesting. Thank you. Well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us, Augustine, Imogen and Simon. And also a big thanks to our producer, Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio. Please do visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk and subscribe to our newsletters so you can stay up to date with everything that is going on in Adland. Uh, on behalf of the campaign team, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.